Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, January 9th, we are studying Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We are not that far removed from the celebration of the 12 days of Christmas. So what does St. Matthew tell us about the birth of the Savior? That is what we will see in today's text. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lees Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Well, thank you, brother. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's good to good to talk to you again. So we're looking here at Matthew, and we're going to get his account of Christmas this morning, as, as we normally would say it. But it's not going to be exactly what we're familiar with from Luke, is it? What what are some of the differences in terms of what we read in Luke and then what we're going to talk about today in Matthew? I guess the biggest difference is Luke actually gives us details. Matthew Matthew doesn't. I had a chance to preach on that a few weekends ago as the text showed up in the lectionary. And Matthew starts here by saying, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way but then he doesn't actually talk about it. He doesn't talk about the story of Christmas as you and I and and so many people normally would picture it. He doesn't go into details of of how they traveled to to get to Bethlehem, of of where they were trying to find lodging, or who was there when the baby was born. None of that is here. Um, The focus is entirely different from Matthew. The focus, I think we could rightly say, is on that word Christ um, in this text, the idea that this is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, that the Jews had been waiting for for hundreds of years. Yeah, I think so. And and that's, of course, there's not, these are not differences between Matthew and Luke in the sense that they contradict each other, but differences in the sense that they complement one another. They, they put, we can get a fuller picture when we put them together. And then there are differences in the sense that they're doing different things. Luke is doing something different in in that familiar account of Caesar Augustus and his decree and Bethlehem and the shepherds and the angels, Luke's doing something different there than Matthew is doing here when he's going to tell us a lot more about Joseph's side of the story, if you want to think about it like that way. And I I think you're right that Matthew's focus on Jesus as the Christ is is a very important thing to keep in mind as we read what he's doing here. He's, He's already called Jesus the Christ in the very first verse. He's repeated that at the end of his genealogy, and now he's re- he's going to repeat it again here in the text that we've got today. This focus on Jesus as the Christ is definitely going to color what Matthew is going to tell us, and and that's going to be a different picture than what we what we're familiar to seeing in Luke, what we're familiar to hearing when when we've got the candlelights in church on Christmas Eve. And so it's just worth our time to point that out, and so that we can read Matthew with those eyes, looking for what Matthew wants us to see and hear in his account. What's he going to highlight for us? That's, a, that's an important thing for us to keep in mind. So probably the best way forward is just to go ahead and take a look at the text and see what Matthew has for us. 
So this is Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So there's the text for today, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Pastor Andrews, as you pointed out at the very beginning, Matthew tells us he's going to narrate the way the birth of Jesus Christ took place, and then he really focuses on what happens before Jesus is born. And that story begins with Matthew telling us that Mary, who is the mother of Jesus, is betrothed to Joseph. And that word betrothed is one of those words that a lot of kids like to ask me about when they have to read it for a Christmas program or something like that. So what is that word betrothed and how do we need to understand it in the context that Matthew's writing? Good. Yeah. It's not a word that we use very often in our, our normal English language today. Um, so this betrothed language is kind of the same phrase that we would say engagement. Uh, Mary and Joseph here are engaged, but even at saying that, it's a very different cultural understanding than what we have today. Uh, there's just a huge difference between 2,000 years ago and understanding of both marriage and preparation for marriage as there is for for now. I mean, you have a fiancé in our culture today. That's a wonderful thing. It's a celebrated thing. You're preparing to enter marriage together as husband and wife. But if something go, goes wrong, if something comes up in the meantime and you just decide to back out of it for any number of reasons, there isn't really a lot of downside. We could be out, uh, I guess, the reservations that we've made for hotels or um, reception areas, those kinds of things. We could be out some of the expenses that we've already paid and we're grieving the loss of a relationship. But it's just not the same. In the, the ancient Near Eastern culture, for all practical purposes, engagement, you were married already. Uh, you could talk about Mary and Joseph as being husband and wife, which in a sense this text does throughout. In order to break off the relationship with Mary, Joseph doesn't just say, hey, we're done, this is over. Instead, he would actually have to give her a certificate of sending away um, the certificate of divorce, as we would more commonly call it. So there, there's a big difference there, and I think that's important for us to be able to see and at least know is going on, that, that Joseph can't just break up with Mary. There's, there's a whole lot more here. Mm-hmm. 
right? This isn't just Mary's going to give back the ring and they're going to, like you said, cancel the hotel reservations. There are actual legal ramifications in terms of property and later marriages. There's all kinds of, of real ramifications already because they're betrothed to one another. It's it, They might as well be married, but they haven't. And this is, this is key as the text moves forward as well. They've not yet consummated the marriage. And yet Mary was with child. And, and this is, Pastor Andrews, this is one of those things that also probably needs a bit of cultural expl- explanation anymore, much to our shame today. It's not all that uncommon anymore for a woman to be with child apart from marriage, and there's not shame attached to it. But in Matthew's world, this would have been a very scandalous thing. Right. Yeah, in our culture, I think it's safe to say that the last couple of generations have been working diligently and desperately to strip that shame um, away from sex apart from marriage and the idea of having a child while you're still single. But if you look at the Levitical law, if you go back to the Old Testament, to the law God's people were supposed to follow, including the Sixth Commandment, that we should not commit adultery, those kinds of things— Sex outside of marriage was, I believe, extremely uncommon. But at the very least, the reason for that is it was punishable. It was a crime uh, to to be with child when you didn't have that context of marriage around you. So what Mary's looking at here, and this is one of the details of the story that perhaps we do overlook from time to time, is what what is Mary facing as a consequence for that good news that Gabriel came and gave to her um, when he announced that she was going to give us a savior, that she was going to be the one who would bear a savior to the world. Uh, The punishment is death. Hmm. And that's then to put it bluntly um, to have a child when you're not married. Hmm. Yeah. It's it. Mary is, is in a, from a human perspective, Mary's in a very tough spot. And and just as, as a, a brief aside with, with what we were saying earlier, you know, we're we're not necessarily advocating we're not advocating here for some sort of punishment, physical punishment, as as was done in the Old Testament for for adultery, for having a child outside of wedlock, but rather just to point out that the fact that our culture doesn't look upon this as something that's outside of God's will for our lives. That's just something for us to to mourn and something for us to pray about and for us to to try to work towards aligning ourselves more closely with with what God's will for our lives is in the sixth commandment. Just to just as that, that brief aside. But but it is it is something, isn't it, Pastor Andrews, to see how very pro-life this text really is, despite these difficulties that Mary and Joseph would have faced. There is no there's nothing in this text that would say that the birth of Jesus is somehow a bad thing, right? This is this is a very pro-life text, to use modern language. Right, and in many ways. Um, so first you have the idea of Joseph and his relationship with Mary, which we're, I'm definitely assuming we'll be unpacking in a few minutes, the idea of, of how he handles this situation. But even the language, uh, to read here in verse 18, that Mary was found to be with child. And that's a wonderful way of talking about being pregnant I mean, that we just don't use today. I think we often say phrases like, hey, we're expecting, 
um, or I'm going to be a father. Or you might hear grandparents say, well, we're going to be grandparents in June. Well, you already are. There's already a child there. And, and so it's a difficult thing to grapple with our language and the way we speak. Um, but I've been trying personally to use a phrase or similar phrases to what we find here um, in my own life. Um, you know, we are currently with child, uh, looking forward to the birth of our fourth. And to use that language is is a blessing, I think, among us. So, yeah, there's a lot of ways that the pro-life idea comes out in this text with the language and with how Mary and Joseph are working through this situation together. Mm, life is a gift from God, and that's true in this case. It's, it's true even in cases where life comes into this world in ways that are not following after the Lord's commands, right? We saw that in the genealogy previously, how the Lord used people's abuses of his law still to bring the Savior into the world. So life is always a gift from God. This text is very clear on that. And this life in particular that the Lord is bringing into the world, this Jesus who is about to be born, this is a unique case, though. And we find out ahead of time from Matthew that Mary is with child from the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, Pastor Andrews? I'm pretty sure we don't know. <laughs> uh, the idea here is that somehow, apart from the normal means uh, where husband and wife conceive a child, here we have God working. So God somehow places Jesus in the flesh inside of Mary's womb to be our Savior for us, which is, as you've been talking about, I mean, that's what we're looking for here. That's the most pro-life thing, is Jesus is the author of life. Here he is, coming down to give us life again. So, it, yeah, we don't know is the easiest answer here, and probably the safest. We don't We don't know in the sense that we don't know the the science behind it, in that sense, right? right? But we, I mean, we the do know what's... Right, the how-to. But in terms of the what, what is Matthew telling us? I mean, the what is the thing that we confess in the Creed, right? That we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, in a, in a way that we don't scientifically try to understand, Jesus was conceived in the Virgin's womb. Even if we can't understand, understand or explain the how, that's the what that we definitely need to confess, right? Right, yeah. The incarnation, the enfleshment that God himself takes on flesh and becomes man, becomes one of us, it's here, right here in this text. Right. So so that's the what, and, and we need to confess this as a miracle, something that God did apart from human will, to use John's language in, in John chapter 1, this was something that he accomplished apart from, from human will. He did it on his own, that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the miracle. But Joseph doesn't know that just yet, at least not in verse 19. So, and that's where the background work that we've been doing really becomes important. As the, as the account continues into Nine, verse 19, Pastor Andrews, what do we start to see from Joseph's point of view? Well, it, in a sense, it 
it almost invites us to, to consider what Joseph is thinking and what should he be thinking, right? This has never happened before. The idea that a, a woman who, who hasn't known a man, to use the biblical language there, would have a child is unheard of. I mean, even though you have the prophecy back in Isaiah 7, this is still this is still a shock and would have been a shock whoever it had happened to. God chose Mary and Joseph to work work this through. And so Joseph at this time is, is having the reaction that I think anyone could have or should have expected him to have had. He believes that Mary has cheated on him, that she has committed adultery, she has um, known a man that was not Joseph, not her husband. And so now we're seeing how Joseph chooses to respond to that. And as we mentioned, the, the law side of this before, um, the punishment for this for Mary would have been putting her to death. And Joseph decides not to do that. He doesn't want Mary killed, which is an incredible thing. Uh, again, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the cultural differences here, but this is an incredible act of mercy and grace that we're seeing from Joseph, again, before the angel visits with him. Um, he is, I'm not sure how it would have worked, he's going to try to divorce her quietly. He's going to try to to settle things, as it says, to not put her to shame, um, to most likely allow her to go on living with her family, whether that's in her father's house or in a brother's house, if Mary had brothers, um, that she would be able to, to raise this child and go on living anyway. So it's a, it's a wonderful speaking highly of, of Joseph. And I think that fits in quite well, as you were mentioning before, the differences here between Luke's account and, and Matthew's account. Luke's a historian, so he's given us just some kind of historical details of things. Matthew's writing to the Jewish people, and so he's trying to, I think, in this part of the text, he's trying to uplift them. And so here's one of those guys who's in the, the line of David. This is the lineage of David, the king from whom the Savior is to come. And, and so Matthew's speaking very highly of Joseph as as a, a, a man of God, that he's doing, trying to do the, this as mercifully and gracefully as he can. Right. He, Matthew calls Joseph a just man there in verse 19, and that's, that's stronger language, I think, than just saying Joseph was a nice guy or a good guy. Rather, he was, he was wanting to do the just, the right thing according to the mercy that, that the Lord reveals of himself in the Old Testament. And I think in this, and this is something that really hasn't struck me until just now, that we we see in Joseph a picture of the child that that he will adopt. Is that I mean, do we see Joseph as to use the language of typology? Can we say that Joseph here is, in some sense, a type of of Christ? I think that's fair. As you were just mentioning the the Old Testament idea of being just here. Joseph believes he's been wronged, and yet his action of justice isn't to bring about Mary's punishment. But his action of justice is actually a thing of forgiveness. And that's exactly what we're going to have in Jesus. Rather than divorcing us, rather than uh, God casting us aside, his form of justice for us is he forgives us of all of our sins. 
Uh, that's Romans 5, as we look at the verses there, that while we were still enemies of God, God came into this world showing his love for us by dying on the cross to forgive our sins. I mean, how incredible is that? And so, yeah, I think there's a glimpse here as we look at Joseph of of that child that is to come, as you talked about it being typological. And I don't want to I don't want to take that too far, but at this, I mean, those verses from Romans five too that that the justice of God comes when He forgives us, and that forgiveness comes through the suffering that Christ undergoes, His death on the cross. So Joseph undoubtedly would have suffered in this case as well. He he probably would have lost property of I mean the the legal ramifications would have hurt him to do this. And so he he too would have suffered. So he's he's a just man. I mean you really get a, a he's the character of Joseph as as it is painted here is is one that is as a good character, right? This is he's a I mean it's it's too weak, but he's a good guy. He is a just man in the full sense of that word. And so he's he's not going to put Mary to shame. He's going to divorce her quietly. This is what what he's going to do because he's a, a just man. But as it turns out, despite Joseph's best intentions of being a just man, if he does that, he's about to do the wrong thing, <laughs> which is which is a bit ironic when, when you stop and think about it, that, that Joseph, if he does what he thinks is just, is going to do the wrong thing. So how does how does the account progress forward then so that Joseph doesn't end up doing the wrong thing? Well, it's an excellent reminder, isn't it, that God, God's ways are higher than our ways? Um, yeah, how does this progress? Well, we read in verse 20, as he's considering these things, uh, almost our phrase, he slept on it, um, an angel of the Lord. God sends him an angel in a dream to share with him what's actually going on. Just as Gabriel came to Mary to tell her the news, um, which you can imagine how necessary that was, um, here it is necessary again for God to interact, to send one of his angels, one of his messengers, into his creation to share this news with somebody else. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, it's impossible for us to really put ourselves into Joseph's shoes and just imagine, just like it would have been Mary at the Annunciation, to imagine what, how overwhelming that would have been to have an angel share that with us. But that's what, what occurs here. Joseph sees an angel, hears the good news uh, that this is going to be the Savior of the world. It's a gift of God and that he should go on with his plans as they had been before. Mary, Mary, take her as your wife, um, and raise this child together. Raise him as though he were your own son is going to come out of this. And, and that, which, which Joseph does, because as, we're, as we've read, Joseph is the one here that Matthew says calls him Jesus, which would indicate that Joseph adopts Jesus as his own, that probably tells us a little bit about some of what the angel says to Joseph, and this is pretty significant, and it would be easy to skip over if we hadn't read the first part of Matthew's gospel already, but he calls Joseph the son of David. Why is that important, Pastor Andrews? Uh, that, that, again, is tying back into the idea of Matthew writing this gospel account to the Jewish people. 
he's going to pull in prophecy after prophecy. He's going to be showing how this little child, and again, that's the point of verse 18 where Matthew's going here. This child is the Christ. This is the one who was promised to us so long ago. And so, yeah, he is the son of David. It's bringing up the significance of the family tree. It's why we got to do yesterday's Bible study on the genealogy, something most people usually skip right over. This promise has been made to David many, many years before in 2 Samuel 7, that somebody would always be seated on his throne, that his throne, his kingdom would be established before God forever. The Jewish people are very specifically looking to the house and lineage of David for their Savior. It's a detail, all that genealogical stuff is a detail that simply cannot be overlooked when it comes to who this Christ was going to be. And so the fact that Joseph is a son of David, and he's going to adopt Jesus as his own, means that Jesus, too, will be included in this line of David, not as some sort of fake son, but as a true son of David. That's who Jesus is going to be, too. And so to name Joseph as the son of David, and then have Joseph adopt Jesus into his family to make Jesus his own child— means that the Lord is busy fulfilling the promise that he made long ago, the promise that Matthew is at pains to show us is being fulfilled right now in Jesus, who is the Christ. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO as we look at Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. We're going to take a short break, but we'll come right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Thursday, January 9th. We are looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, with Pastor Steve Andrews, who serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we were looking at the angel's words to Joseph, and we talked about how it's important that the angel calls him the son of David. And then he tells him, don't be afraid, do not fear. But this do not fear from the angel is, is a bit more than quit shaking because I'm an angel talking to you. What? Why doesn't Joseph need to be afraid? Yeah, that fear response tends to happen when the angels appear. Uh, you think of just about any appearance of an angel in Scripture, and the people are terrified. Uh, makes you wonder what angels really look like, uh, but the, the picture of somebody whose mouth is just hanging open as they're quaking in fear, and they can't even think of something to say in response to this incredible thing. And yet here it is different. The angel doesn't tell Joseph to not be afraid of himself. So don't fear and then go on with his message. The angel's message indicates Joseph already really is afraid. Uh, You know, what the situation Joseph is facing is, as we've talked about the possible suffering, the ramifications of this for him, had he divorced her, there's also ramifications for him if he goes through with taking her to be his wife. 
And the angel tells him to do it anyway. Don't be afraid. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And the reason is going to then be the gospel, that this child, this is verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It is the gospel. It's the Christ, the Messiah that they've been waiting for ever since the Garden of Eden and the fall into sin. This is the promise that's been so long rejoiced in, so long looked forward to. Joseph, you get to be a part of this. Uh, Welcome, in a sense, welcome to the family. Don't fear. Yeah, and and I think do not fear more than just don't be afraid for your own personal sake, right? Don't don't be afraid because it's all going to turn out okay for you, Joseph, or some sort of generic thing like that. But a much deeper thing that don't be afraid, Joseph, because here's the Savior. And even if you do still suffer for taking Mary as your wife, even if everything doesn't quite turn out okay, whatever that may mean, the Savior's still here, Joseph, and the Savior is for you. This child that your betrothed is carrying, that's the Savior. He's here for you. So don't be afraid, Joseph. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very full proclamation of the gospel, I would say, not just some surface level, here's the silver lining, Joseph, it's all going to be okay. It's, it's, it's much deeper than that. So I appreciate you bringing that out. So the angel's words continue. And, and he tells Joseph what's really going on, the thing that Joseph could never have known if the Lord had not revealed it to him, the Lord sends the angel to reveal, right? I mean, everyone knows that babies are not conceived in virgins, right? I mean, that's why it was surprising to Joseph and to Mary both, and the angel had to come. It's it's not like this is something we've figured out, and, and people of old were just not as smart and didn't realize it, and so they made up this story. No, they knew that this doesn't happen. And so the Lord has to reveal it to both Joseph and Mary. Here he does to Joseph. And and in this revelation from the Lord, one of the very important things that he points out to Joseph is what this child's name is to be. And there's two names given. The first is Jesus. What's the importance of that name, Pastor Andrews? So often when, when we get names for God, these names tell us, a little bit about God's character, a little bit about who he is, a little bit about what he's going to do for us. And that's exactly what this name Jesus is going to give us. Um, it's the Greek variant of the Old Testament, the Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua, as it would have been said in Hebrew. Um, they both have the same meaning. Uh, they simply mean he saves. This child is the Savior. He is the one who has come into this world to deliver us from our sins. That is Jesus. That's what the name itself means for us. That's who God is. It's what he's doing. And in this, this is the name that God wants us to remember him by now from generation to generation. Ongoingly, as we talk to our people, God's people in this era, and you say the name Jesus, they know who you're talking about. This is God for us. Right. So, and I think... When we hear the name Jesus, Joshua, and you said it means he saves, who's the who's the he? I think we can be specific on that, can't we? Yeah, he saves is this child. Um, it's the one the angel is pointing to. It's the one Matthew is pointing to as the fulfiller of the Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he, he God, Jesus, is going to 
save us. Well, and, and even, and, and maybe, maybe I wasn't, here's, here's where I was going with that too. And, and what you said is exactly right. But I think we can also say that the he who saves is the Lord, like the Lord all caps in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses in the burning bush. And I think you even, you even were, were quoting from the book of Exodus, it sounded like to me, when you were talking about this is his name that is to be remembered from generation to generation. That's the way the Lord talked to Moses in the book of Exodus. And now here you're using that language of Jesus. So, so the confession that, that Matthew's giving us, the confession that the angel's giving to Joseph, right, is that Jesus is that same God of the Old Testament now come to save his people in the flesh. That's, that's kind of right. where I was headed. Is that, is that, I mean, are we on the same page there? Yeah, and you and I were having that conversation when we studied Exodus together, however many months ago that's been <laughs> at this point. But yeah, Yahweh, he is, uh, from the Hebrew, uh, was the name that by which we were to remember God, we were to call him, uh, call upon him from generation to generation. And it does, it's that Lord in all caps. And it's kind of that quizzical thing. You get to the New Testament, and even Jesus quoting the Old Testament, suddenly that disappears. Like, where did it go? And I think the answer is here. I think we have been given this, not a replacement, but just another. Uh, another name by which we are to remember the Lord from generation to generation. And again, just like he is, is based on the, uh, the faith confession. So Jesus is based on our confession of faith. By saying Jesus, we're saying he saves me. He saves us. Right. Yeah, I, I don't think we should say a replacement, but maybe a, a fulfillment is the way we would talk about it. That the name sure. Yahweh given in the Old Testament comes to its fulfillment in the name Jesus given to Joseph here. And this is a theme that, that we can trace throughout Matthew's gospel, and we'll do that as we, we study it. Think of the importance of the name at the very end when, when baptism is given. And then throughout the rest of the New Testament, you get Peter's sermon in the book of Acts chapter 4, where he talks about there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Paul in Philippians chapter two talks about at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So this is, I mean, this is huge when we hear the name of this child is to be Jesus because he's the one who's going to save his people from their sins. And, and maybe we can touch on just, just very briefly, Pastor Andrews, because we'll see this unfold in the gospel of Matthew, but this well, what does that salvation from sins entail? What, what does that mean to be saved from sins? I'm not sure that people hearing this gospel knew. You know, as you think of what they were expecting of the one who would come and save them, they were hoping for a military champion who would overthrow the worldly governments and give them a paradise, in a sense, right here and right now. Um, it does seem like there's a bit of a a divorcing of the idea from sin from the Savior, rather than looking at the Old Testament, acknowledging that the, what the punishment and the result of our sin is, which is the idea that we die, and the temporary means of forgiveness in the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices, and how bloody um, you get in the book of Leviticus trying to read through all of that, that you had to have that sacrifice, that bloodshed, for forgiveness in order to be made one, to be atoned at one with God again, this little child, this baby, 
is going to be the one who sheds his blood for us. A blood that doesn't just work on occasion, a blood that doesn't have to be re-sacrificed again and again, but a blood that works once and for all. And I love that picture that we get from the the sermon written to the Hebrew people, um, where essentially the Old Testament priest went in and made that sacrifice in the the holy of holy place, the the most holy, the ark of God. He sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice just that one time, and then he walks out. He leaves. He doesn't remain in the presence of God. But this child will, as the Christ sacrifices himself to forgive our sins, to take our sins away and make us whole, restore us before the Lord, he not only sprinkles his own blood in the heavenly temple, he sits down, he seats himself at the right hand of the Father, and he remains in the presence of the Father, permanently fulfilling for us that forgiveness of sins. It's gone. Our sins are gone. Yeah, I I think the the picture that you painted there of salvation is a is a a complete one is is what I want to bring out of this that to be saved from sin involves to be saved from death and it means to be restored so that to be saved from sin as we'll see is certainly a matter of forgiveness that the Lord wipes those sins away but he also restores to us true life I mean, and so I think we, when we talk about salvation from sins, it's not only forgiveness, the wiping away of sins, but it, it goes all the way, as we will see, to the matter of resurrection, where the Lord restores our life the way that that he intended it to be, and even better. And it's going to come first in the person of Jesus, and then it's going to be given to us fully on the last day. So this, and again, that's that's sort of just me setting the setting the the scene for the rest of Matthew's gospel, as we look to see what does this salvation of sins entail? It's it's an all-encompassing thing. Forgiveness of sins, righteousness given, restoration of creation, resurrection. All of this is what Jesus has come to do. It's wrapped up there in his name. And, and I don't want to—we I we could probably keep talking about that, Pastor Andrews. If you want to respond, feel free to do. But I do want to make sure we hit the second name that is that is given. Now, in verse 22, the angel's message is done. And Matthew writes again, saying, what we'll hear him say many times throughout his book, this fulfills what the Lord had spoken, or something to that effect. This fulfills what was written. And and the name given here is going to be Emmanuel. It comes from a quotation from Isaiah chapter 7. Pastor Andrews, there's plenty there to unpack. Get us started into verses 22 and 23 here. Sure. We could spend a long time on Isaiah 7. So (laughs) we've got that fulfillment piece again. And I have not tried to track through Matthew and see how many of the fulfillments of the Old Testament prophecies he actually covers in his book, but it's going to be a large number if you do try and track that as you're going through together in the months to come. But this is why the the book started the way it did, the genealogy. This is the child rooted in that ongoing promise all the way back to Adam in Genesis 3.15. Then you have Abraham in Genesis 22. David in 2 Samuel, as we've already said, chapter 7. And then we're given another one in Isaiah 7, uh, right there in verse 23. The idea that was spoken in the Old Testament to King Ahaz. So Ahaz was ruler over God's people, the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, And Isaiah is 
sent to speak to him and give him the opportunity essentially to repent of his sins and trust in the Lord rather than trusting in neighboring armies like the Assyrians to do his, his work for him and to save him. And so Isaiah gives him this opportunity and, and says, ask the Lord, ask Yahweh for a sign, whatever you want um, under heaven, um, ask for it and it'll be done for you. And Ahaz's response is, I won't, I, don't, I won't ask, I won't put the Lord to the test. Um, I believe he actually says, I won't put Yahweh to the test. He says the name. And so God then responds with this prophecy right there to, to Ahaz. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It's one of those things that was probably puzzling for Ahaz to hear. Again, um, the idea that a virgin would conceive. Um, is not normal play, at least not in our, our, our way of talking about this language, perhaps. Um, but as we move forward into the New Testament, into this era, it then brings us to the promise of Jesus. So we have this wonderful, just like so many of the other prophecies in the Old Testament, this pointing to a Messiah who would come, born of a virgin, and then he's going to get this new name again, this name Emmanuel, uh, which means God with us. That's one of the ones I think we know pretty well as God's church today. Um, we make use of that name on a regular basis. Um, God is with us. His presence is with us. And again, we can talk about that with the picture that we have from from the Old Testament, that God's presence was with his people. And now because of what Christ does for us on the cross, we can actually be in the presence of God now uh, without dying. Uh, that's temple curtain stuff, Matthew 27. But also forever, we get to live with God forever. We get to be in his presence forever. And that's a wonderful, wonderful gift that we have. Um, and this name brings that out for us. That we are with God here and now. And that also comes to us through the, his word proclaimed in our midst as we get to hear it uh, read aloud or preached or, or, or those different things, it comes to the sacraments. Uh, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, body and blood, bread and wine, um, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is, the, the name Emmanuel, I think is one of the most comforting of God's names and, and Jesus' names, right? That, that God is with us, and not with us as our judge, not with us as our executor, but he's with us as our Savior. He's with us in the virgin's womb. Uh, what what an, a wonderful promise that God is with us in this way. He, he's not here to harm us. He's not here to condemn us. He's here to save us. He's with us. And as you rightly pointed out, and this is this is huge, He's still with us. I'm, I'm not literally with you right now, Pastor Andrews, at least not bodily, and you are not with me in that sense. But as, as surely as I am with the saints of God in Smithville on a Sunday morning, and they are with me, so surely Jesus is still with us in the very ways that, that you've pointed out to us already. And this is where Matthew's gospel, again, to, to just help us, 
keep in mind where we're going. Matthew's gospel is going to take us here. And again, in some of the most comforting words that we'll hear Jesus speak in Matthew's gospel, the very end, right? Many of us know these words, right? Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that, that promise is still true. And I think it's one of the most comforting promises that we get from, from this Savior, Jesus. So one of those pa- promises. Go ahead, go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. Well, I'll just, just let you say, respond. I think we hear Matthew 28 quoted so frequently, um, both in our own uh, circles um, among Lutherans, but also, I think, in a lot of American Christianity. But the part you were just bringing out usually gets left off. It's, you know, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And the focus kind of stops there. Let's focus on making disciples. What's that look like? And we forget that last part. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Those are the last words of the book. That's such a wonderful promise for us to, as you said, find comfort in that Jesus will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never abandon us. And we should cling to that. Yeah, especially as we do those very things. And and whoever I get to have that conversation with as we get to the end of the book, right? That that command, right. go and make disciples, is actually bracketed by those two by two promises. First, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Last, I'm with you always. Which which totally I think must color the way that we hear that command. But that's that's a discussion for that text. So please follow through in the Gospel of Matthew with us all the way to, to chapter 28. So, Pastor Andrews, though, here in in, ver, in chapter 1, though, we, we should finish out this text. We've got just under seven minutes to do so. So, sure. Joseph, Matthew's given us this uh, narrative interlude to tell us, hey, the Lord was fulfilling his word given in Isaiah chapter 7. And then he returns back to Joseph in verses 24 through 25. Joseph, how does he respond to the message the angel gives him. Joseph responds in the way that so many of the faithful witnesses before him did. Um, he does what he was instructed to do. The angel told him to take Mary as his wife, so he takes Mary as his wife, tells him to name the child Jesus, so he names him Jesus. Um, our understanding of, I guess, that part of their culture is that was typically done at the time of circumcision on day eight you would have the the son circumcised and the name would be given and spoken of him at that point Um, so we know again that's part of who this jesus is as he's come to be our savior he's actually coming into the creation and he's doing all the things that we were supposed to do he's going to keep the law perfectly for us you'll see that more in the gospel of course Um, but we see it already starting i think here even though Matthew doesn't very specifically talk about that eighth day moment. Right. Luke, Luke, I mean, and again, we're in Matthew, but just to, to see how these two pictures complement one another, Luke does tell us that in, in Luke 2, right. verse 21, which is the reading for New Year's Day, that's eight days after Christmas, the, the naming, Luke 2, verse 21, that's the only verse that you read for the gospel reading that day. That's where Luke tells us that Jesus was named at the end of eight days when he was circumcised. And it's it, it's something to see in Luke's gospel in chapter two, 
the name Jesus doesn't actually show up until then, until his circumcision. So you're you're right that that is the the day he was named, and we could. I mean, if we were looking at Luke, we could talk about the the significance of the name <laughs> being yeah. attached to the circum. Well, if you want to talk about it, you can, Pastor Andrews. I mean, the the name being given at the moment of circumcision. What's what? It, why is that significant, particularly when it comes to Jesus? Or you can punt if you weren't ready to answer that question. <laughs> That's a great question, and I've got at least an answer. The significance that we're looking at there is, in a sense, new life. As we talk about the old covenant with God, as you are circumcised, it is the mark of entry into that old covenant. You are being made a member of God's family. You're being made a a part of God's kingdom. And so you get your name at that point. Um, You could even take that to the part of talking about the names that are written in the book of life if you want to go that far. Um, But you are getting this new name. Um, And I think historically we've seen that track through with the Roman Catholic practice or in regards to the New Testament entry point into faith and to God's family of baptism. Catholics have often given an additional name to somebody at the time the child was baptized as just a part of that tradition. And I think those are probably connected. So, yeah, Jesus receiving this name then, again, he is doing what we were supposed to do. He's coming in. He's going to come underneath, uh, and he's going to fulfill the law for us. And so that starts even as just a little baby boy, as his parents are faithfully doing what's been instructed by God um, for the last couple thousand years. Jesus is brought into that picture. He's brought into the kingdom of Israel at that point to be our our Savior, to be the one who redeems us. Right, the one who fulfills the law for us. And two, I, I think we'd also want to say that he sheds his blood there, too, that his his name is attached to the shedding yes. of his blood for the very first time as well. And I, I know that's that's more in, in Luke that we get that, but still here, the name Jesus is obviously very important for Matthew as he recounts what the angel tells to Joseph, and he ends this text that Joseph does what the angel said. He calls his name Jesus. And so every time from here on out in Matthew's gospel, when we hear the name Jesus, we should be thinking, here's the Lord in the flesh. He's come to save me. Pastor Andrews, with just over two minutes left here on the morning, give us a a summary of what we've talked about here in Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. Well, we again get that idea of the importance of prophecy as we're going to be moving through this book, that this child, this Christ, this Messiah, this Jesus is the one who is going to fulfill everything that was spoken in the Old Testament, everything that God said this Savior would do um, as he came in Bethlehem, as um, this child born in such a, a, a humble way. He is going to fulfill all of these prophecies for us. Matthew is encouraging the Jewish people who know their Old Testament so well to see who this Jesus is, not just as a person, but as God in the flesh for them. And we're so thankful, and you'll, you'll see this as the gospel continues onward. The promise is not just for the Jew, but it's also for all of us. This is Jesus. He saves. This is Yahweh becoming man, taking on flesh to take our place, to take our sins upon himself and die on the cross. 
giving himself for us. Pastor Steve Andrews is the pastor at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Pastor Andrews, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Jesus Christ, his birth was a miracle conceived in the virgin's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's come here for you to save you from your sins, a complete, full salvation, forgiveness, resurrection. Those are yours by faith in Jesus Christ, who truly is the promised son of David, the king who will reign over all forever for you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.